With the legendary Gene Pitney, I guess you get tired of hearing that. You know, I was looking through your bio notes today, and uh, it says, born near Hartford, uh, or born in Hartford, Connecticut, and raised in a town called Rockville. Wouldn't that make a good album title, Raised in Rockville? Well, they hung me with that red, right, <laughs> right in the beginning. Somebody on uh, one of the radio stations from Hartford called me the Rockville Rocket. And to this day, I mean, green hair and all, I'm still referred to as the Rockville Rocket at home. What do you think, Gene, of uh, the reunion of rock and roll, the revival of rock and roll? I hate the word revival. It sounds like it died. It never did. But all of the attention, performers like yourself and Roy Orbison and uh, all of the acts that uh, were so big in the 60s, is it that the kids today are without their own brand of music or what? But it's so phenomenal. Well, it's an amazing thing to me because I didn't realize until, well, not a year ago, I thought that like when the 50,000-watt station in, in Hartford yeah. went 50s, 60s music, I thought it was a localized situation. I didn't know that it was a program thing all the way across the country, and I noticed when I just recently did, did a, cour, a tour of Ontario that it's in Canada and it's pretty much around the world because uh, I've been doing tours nonstop for like 26 years, so, uh, so has Roy, so has a lot of the people that you mentioned. Right. Uh, for me, this happening is, isn't like, matter of fact, the tour that I'm on right now has nothing to do with the fact of, of that happening. It's, it's beneficial, but I have people that like write into the fan club and they say, uh, I remember one girl, she was like 17, and she said, I wish I lived in the 60s. And I have to ask people, because it fascinates me, why? And you come to a conclusion after a while that there was like, the only word I can come up with is optimism. Yes. There was definitely an optimism and a, a feeling of, uh, that if everybody did something together, they could create something. It was a thing, of, peace was a big part of it. Uh, John Kennedy was a big part of it. Um, positive thinking, positive lyrics in all the songs. And it was a very, very up time. And to me, the 70s was a complete loser, a complete washout. So, I mean, I don't know whether there's any songs anybody's going to relate back to from the, from the 70s, but it's all of a sudden come full circle again. But it's, all, it's also something, you know, I've been playing uh, rock and roll music. I guess I was the first one in this Canada to do it in Canada back in 1954. And I never thought in those days that, uh, you know, 32 years later, 33 years later, it'd still be around, you know. Did you? when you were a kid. I never thought, I didn't know that I'd still be around. No. Let alone singing, you know. But, but you had an interesting beginning because you were an electronics buff in, uh, in school and you took some of that when you made your first record. How did that all come about? Because I, I, if I remember right or correctly, there were seven tracks, seven tracks that you put together and you did everything on it. You sang, you played the drums, you played the piano. What was it? The only thing you didn't play was the bass was the story? Yeah, but I love the way that when somebody writes a bio for you that they make it sound like you were really a creative genius before your time. Maybe we were doing things before our time, but the main reason we did that particular record was we didn't have any money. <laughs> and because motivated. I could play piano and I could play guitar, and the biggest thing going at that time was a four-track machine, mm -hmm. we did, uh, I played piano and sang the lead vocal, then I played guitar on the second track and I sang the harmony vocal, then I did the, the drum line which had a lot of cymbal crashes which were very, very important to the record, and on the fourth track was the bass player which right. I didn't play. And then we self-synced on top of that because we ran out of tracks, so we put sound on sound and we did about three or four layers of all the oohs and ahs and bop-bops and I did harmony on top of harmony on top of harmony. And it cost about $30. 30 bucks, right? Yeah, but all it was meant for was to be presented to another artist to say, this is the way the song sounds, would you like to record it? Because you were songwriting at the time. That's right. Matter of fact, I made some notes. He's a Rebel with the Crystals, you wrote that. Uh, Rubber Ball for Bobby V. Um, Today's Teardrops, which Roy Orbison did on the other side of one of his giant hits called Blue Angel, and Hello Mary Lou for Rick Nelson. 
And was it a situation like Neil Diamond had? Because I've talked to him, you know, he said he was writing all of this and then he realized that maybe he couldn't be as good or better than some of the artists, but he, he thought uh, the way to get his songs out was to sing them himself. I mean, that was his motivation. It was absolutely a side door situation for me. There were people, uh, A&R men, that listened to the sound that I have, that high pitch sound. And I could tell when they were listening to me play piano or guitar that they were saying, is that sound something good? Is it marketable? Will people want to buy it or is it going to be a turnoff as far as people? And you, you go back to Neil for a moment. I remember Neil coming around as a songwriter and uh, coming in, sitting down, playing things on the piano. And it's so relative, because I remember the same thing with Backrack and David when they first started writing. Their time had to come where their sound was acceptable. Right. Neil was doing the uh, Cracklin' Rosies and things like that. Sweet Caroline, I think. Uh, yeah, which, it just wasn't ready for, for somebody else to record it. I don't know why, but the music at that time, the trend or whatever was happening in the day, you know, go back into the late uh, 70s, like with disco or something, where it flooded the market. So if you heard anything else, you'd say, well, it's not, not right for now. But his time had to come, and when it did, of course, bingo, they found out the best guy to record his songs was himself. And Burton and Howell, when they were writing, they were writing for a long, long time with a certain type of a, a sound that um, really, almost like after Alfie from the movie, then they came into their own. But they'd been around having a hit here and there with R&B stuff and different kinds of songs for a long time, but that not, not until the time arrived. But how did you feel when, uh, for instance, with Rick Nelson's Hello, Mary Lou, or today's Teardrops, which he did and, and Roy Orbison did, was that a flattering thing? I mean, it's like uh, you've, you've done a painting and someone uh, has admired it who's also an artist. How, how My favorite part of songwriting is like the fact that you create it. It's kind of like your baby. And especially if you're writing on your own and you do the uh, lyric uh, and the melody. And then I used to love to have somebody take it and do something with it that was totally different produce it a way that you hadn't had in mind whatsoever. Like if, uh, Hello Mary Lou for instance, I never in a million years would have pictured Rick Nelson being the guy for that record. Now people will say, how can you say that? Because yeah. when they first heard it, they heard it probably with Rick Nelson singing it, which is automatic, so you relate the two together. But I sat in my little 35 Ford coupe with my guitar strumming and uh, I had that phrase in my head, Hello Mary Lou, Goodbye Heart. And I just knew that if I could wrap the song around it, that I, I had a winner and then Every time that I had a good song that I wrote, the reason I never got to record them was that I had a song out as a recording artist. So when my song was out there, my publisher being very, very aggressive said, well, I got a good song, I'm not gonna wait for him mm -hmm. by the time his song is, goes down the charts. So bingo, somebody else had it. So it was nice, because I remember driving through like Philadelphia when uh, I think I Wanna Love My Life Away, the first hit that we discussed before when I did all the voices on, that was out going up in the charts for me and Hello Mary Lou was released by Rick Nelson. Must be neat to drive along in the car and hear your material. That's oh, especially with somebody else doing it a different way, like I said. Talking to Bobby V last year, and uh, and he mentioned that Rubber Ball was really the first giant that he had. He had records out before that, Devil or Angel and things, but uh, right. you didn't have him in mind for it either, obviously, when you wrote it. Or did you? I'm not sure with that one. The only one that I ever wrote for that I said I'm going to actually get them to, to record, yeah. I, want, I want to have their follow-up record, was He's a Rebel, because I had heard um, what Phil Spector had done with Uptown. And it was the first time I'd ever heard a complete string section written for a funky song, like an R&B or a, a, actually a rock way. And I, I was parked in front of the Connecticut Bank and Trust building. I remember exactly where I heard it on the radio. <laughs> and it made such an impression on me that I said, I'm gonna write the next single for them. And never thinking in a million years that I could, but I did. But as far as, uh, Rubber Ball sounds maybe like there was some connection because it was, it's right up his alley. I mean, yeah, it was the right kind Buddy of Buddy Holly-ish type mm. sound, you know. And when I heard it, I remember telling the publisher, I said, that's gonna be your first 
first big hit by me as a songwriter. Because I had that, that listener's ear, which you, you wear, out, wear out after a while. When mm -hmm. you start writing and you get clinical and you start listening to the arrangement and you start listening to different parts of the song, you don't take the whole thing and encompass it and just say that's a hit or that's not a hit. And I'm too close to it. Yeah. yeah, and at that time I still had it. I heard one play on it and I said, bingo, winner. But I remember you being interviewed, I don't know who did it, years and years ago, when you did uh, Town Without Pity, which won a Golden Globe Award, uh, was nominated for an Oscar. I think you sang, sang that on the Oscars that year. Scared you? me to death, yes. What was that like, working with uh, somebody like Dimitri Tiomkin? Uh, well, it was a funny session because when they, uh, the reason I got the song to begin with, it was political. Uh, I, happened, I was on Musicore Records, which was distributed by United Artists Records. The film was produced by United Artists. And uh, the, the guy managing me said, you know, can we get Gene to do a song from a movie? And they came up with that one. And I went out to LA and I, I got the song and it was a very unusual song. I mean, it still is today, but it was very unusual for that period of time. And I thought, how do I sing this thing? Yeah. What do I do with it to make it successful? Like, well, how am I supposed to approach it? And I thought the best thing I can do is just go in and sing it as straight a ballad and as straight voiced as I possibly can, as round voice I can. And I remember we started at seven o'clock at night. And as the night progressed, I could see in the booth, Tiomkin was there and Aaron Schroeder was doing the production. Jimmy Haskell was uh, with the stick and Don Costley had written all the arrangements. And they were all kind of like looking at each other and saying, eh, you know, it's all right. Try it again and we'll do something different. They were changing the orchestra, changing the girls and the group in the back singing and everything. And I could tell that nothing's really happening. 3.30, 4 o'clock the next morning, <laughs> I was running out of pipes. And instead of going, what a town without pity, I was going, what a town with, and they said, that's it. That's it, what we're looking for. The growl for. and the voice. Yeah, as they called it, a greps is what they wanted. <laughs> and they were very, very happy. All it took was make Gene sing for eight hours and, and we got it. Of course, uh, when you're doing movie tracks, I mean, I've seen this uh, before in documentaries, you really go in a lot of times, too, and uh, you're singing it or the, or the musicians are playing to the, to the screen. Did you ever get to meet uh, uh, John Wayne or Jimmy Stewart and when you did The, uh, the Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, or did you go into a studio si situation like that? No, I would have loved to have done that because I, I've been in a lot of those studios where they're immense and they, they show the whole thing while the orchestra's playing and everything. I've never actually seen that done. But I know that with, with Town Without Pity, uh, the film was shot in Germany. Yeah. I was recording on the West Coast. And whoever was putting the song into the film went bananas with it. And he put it in nine times. Right. And they went crazy. They had to edit the whole thing. Because <laughs> when the producer saw it when it came back, he said, if you, if you opened a car door and were getting in the car, it was playing on a radio. <laughs> if you went into a bar or something, it was playing on a jukebox. I mean, this guy had it everywhere. You know, it got crazy. So they cut it a few times and it, then it made sense.